0: Hello, my friends. I saw a little clip circulating on YouTube of Justin Trudeau talking about the great reset of Agenda 2030 and using the pandemic as an excuse to obtain both. Well, I tracked down the original press conference where Trudeau said those things, and I'll take you through it. Uh, Very interesting stuff, very terrifying stuff. Uh, Let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus, though, so you can see the visuals as well as hearing the audio. That's what Rebel News Plus is. It's my podcast in video form. Sheila Gunn Reid and David Menzies, they have a weekly video show too. And importantly, you support Rebel News. It's only eight bucks a month, or even less if you buy a year in advance. Go to rebelnews.com, click subscribe, and know that you'll be keeping us strong. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, the mask slips and Justin Trudeau admits he wants to use the pandemic as an excuse to reset the world and remake it in the image of the United Nations. It's November 16th and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why i publish? because it's, it's my bloody right to do so. I saw a slightly grainy video on Twitter, like someone had recorded a TV show from their cell phone. It was very short, just 30 seconds long. Here, take a look.
1: Building back better means getting support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 agenda for sustainable development and the SDGs. Canada is here to listen and to help. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change.
0: That's incredible, isn't it? It's almost like a conspiracy theory about Justin Trudeau, except it was said by Justin Trudeau. Uh, Here's what I tweeted about it. I thought this was supposed to be a conspiracy theory, but here it is, straight from Trudeau's mouth. The pandemic is the excuse for a great reset of the world, led by the UN. As of mid-afternoon today, that tweet had nearly three million impressions. That's the number of people who looked at it. And more than two million people stopped to actually play the video. Millions. It was retweeted by all sorts of people in Canada and abroad. Why? Well, it's sort of obvious. He admits that he is exploiting the crisis of the pandemic for other political purposes. I mean, we, we know that. He took the pandemic as an excuse to shut down parliament, to shut down press conferences to keep journalists away from him, to pass a budget. What am I saying? Without passing a budget, he borrowed more and spent more money than Canada did to fight both world wars combined. Uh, His public health officer issues a series of ever more bizarre edicts, whipping up fear and panic, demonizing anyone who disagrees with her as racist, and generally keeping people in a state of submission, confusion, worry you're locked down. National unemployment is a staggering 9%, but Trudeau thinks this is the perfect moment to announce that he's raising immigration to record levels. 1.2 million foreigners coming, half of whom Trudeau admits will be uneconomic, will immediately go on social services and welfare. And those who do work, well, they'll be driving down wages as they compete for Canadians already desperate for work, and they'll drive up housing prices too. So yeah, we already knew that Trudeau was exploiting the crisis for his political ends. We just never knew that he thought about it in those terms. Also, that he was consciously sneaking through whatever he could as fast as he could in the name of the pandemic. Now a lot of things make more sense, don't they? Well, uh, it was pretty easy to find the original source video that had been clipped to a 30-second cut for that tweet. It's from this. The United Nations itself, uh, the actual name of the event that was filmed there was hybrid press briefing by the Secretary General, along with the Prime Ministers of Canada and Jamaica, Justin Trudeau and Andrew Holness. They briefed reporters on the meeting of Financing the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development in the Era of COVID-19 and Beyond. So you got it right there, (laughs) what they were doing. And the thing about Trudeau, when he's giving speeches to foreign audiences, there's two things about it. First, he thinks probably accurately, that no one overseas knows how much he's despised here at home. So, for example, he can go to Davos to the World Economic Forum to talk about what a feminist he is, while back at home we all know that he sexually assaulted Rose Knight in Creston, B.C.
1: Often a man experiences an interaction as being benign or not inappropriate, and a woman, uh, particularly in a professional context, can experience it differently, and we have to respect that and reflect on that.
0: He can hold himself out as a great white hope for all the third world, whereas here at home, we know he casually wore his racist blackface costume so many times, he lost count of it so many times. It literally happened in three different decades of his life so many times, he literally had a costume kit at home, ready for use on a moment's notice. Like some people, I don't know, have a tuxedo in the closet just in case. Trudeau has a blackface costume just in case. I wonder if he's ever even thrown it out So, some foreigners might actually believe him, uh, though come to think of it, I'm not sure anymore. Trudeau was so certain that he was going to win the corrupt election to get Canada a temporary seat on the United Nations Security Council, but he just didn't. He was a total flop, despite probably spending about a billion dollars on his vanity campaign when you add in all his foreign aid spending. So, maybe they're wise to him overseas after all. Or maybe black leaders in Africa just don't like a racist in blackface, just a hypothesis there. But there is something else whenever Trudeau speaks to the foreign press, whether it's that he's trying to impress them or that he somehow thinks we back home won't hear him. Trudeau gets weirder than normal, more extreme than normal. Uh, It was uh, that way in this super gross article in the New York Times shortly after his election uh, that Trudeau said, quote, there is no core identity, no mainstream in Canada. Yeah, go to hell, buddy. Uh, was he trying to impress New Yorkers about how cosmopolitan he was? Was he telling them what they what he thought they wanted to hear? Or was he finally free of mere Canadians who he weirdly thought wouldn't read his comments, so he was just truly being himself? Who knows? But that's, I think, what we had here, again, in his pandemic press conference at the United Nations, trying to please foreigners and feeling unfettered by mere Canadian citizens, Let me show you a few more clips from that same press conference. What you saw in that Twitter video was just 30 seconds. Here's more. I'm going to cut out the parts in French where he basically repeats his English points. And I'm going to cut out the other participants. Here are some
1: key Trudeau clips. The fight against COVID-19 is far from over. In many parts of the world, including Canada, the number of new cases is rising and quickly. We must do everything we can to flatten the curve as much as possible. That means following public health recommendations and using all the tools available, from wearing masks to social distancing, too, in Canada, downloading the free COVID alert app.
0: So far, so boring. Of course, he himself doesn't follow those rules. Uh, Here he is at a Black Lives Matter protest on Parliament Hill. I mean, look, if there's a woke photo op, he's not going to miss it because of some social distancing rule, is he? I'll skip to his... his, uh,
1: boring boilerplate, and I'll just go to the new stuff uh, here. Around the world, the pandemic has worsened long-standing challenges of poverty, inequality, and climate change. Last spring, Canada convened a high-level meeting with Prime Minister Holness of Jamaica and the Secretary General to discuss a global response as we build a better, more equitable system. In May, We agreed to look at six urgent areas of action to mobilize financing, and today, with over 60 international partners, we've continued that important work. Hey, did
0: you know that? Did you know that Trudeau, instead of focusing on Canada and the crisis here, and I don't just mean the health crisis, if it even amounted to that, but I mean the economic crisis that he and the rest of the political class caused, did you know that he was actually instead working with foreign leaders to put together a bailout for foreign countries? What, the CBC didn't bring that to your attention? I mean, it's been five years since Trudeau promised clean water on Canadian Indian reserves, but hey, they don't get a vote for the who, (laughs) they don't get a vote to decide who's on the UN Security Council, do they? They don't vote for who gets a Nobel Peace Prize, do they? So instead, Trudeau spent his time and our billions on foreign schemes like that. And none of it worked. He did not get on the Security Council, but everyone took his money. A fool and his money are soon parted. The saying goes, trouble is,
1: he's the fool, but it's our money. All right, here's the next clip. From ensuring equitable access to vaccines to providing more time for distressed countries to make bilateral debt payments, including Caribbean and small island states, we're working on concrete options that will help build a more resilient world for the short, medium, and long term. The global community must not give up on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the SDGs. In fact, we should seize this opportunity to do even more. Earlier this morning, I announced that Canada will invest an additional $400 million in humanitarian and development funding to fight COVID-19, with even more in the years to come. We will make sure that women and girls who've been disproportionately impacted by the consequences of COVID-19 benefit from this new funding. We must listen to the needs of small island developing states and other vulnerable countries and help carry their voices to the World Bank, the G7, the G20, and other organizations this fall. Did you know that? Did you know that Trudeau was prioritizing, what was that, small
0: island countries? See, vulnerable? What about our own vulnerable communities? His own province, Quebec, where 61% of all Canadian deaths from the virus have happened, including in his own riding, why is he taking our money and spending his time worrying about small island countries that are vulnerable? Quebec has had more COVID deaths than all other provinces combined, even though Quebec only has a quarter of the population. Why? And why hasn't a single reporter even asked him that question? I think we would ask him that question, but Trudeau has the RCMP frog march our reporters away from press conferences, and the rest of the media gets the message pretty quick. Here's some more.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Just briefly to add, I mean, we know that in a time of crisis, it is a natural human inclination to want to hunker down and look inward and protect each other and protect ourselves. Uh, And you think later about your neighbors and other countries around the world. Well, this particular crisis requires us to make sure that we are working together as a global community, because no country can eliminate the COVID-19 virus until all countries eliminate the COVID-19 virus no country can come out and restore economic prosperity unless we also have a global restoration of economic prosperity. Uh, Canada has long understood that, and that's why we're continuing to step up with hundreds of millions of dollars towards COVAX, towards uh, you know global financing, towards debt relief, towards all the things that we can do. But we also know that we need to include more countries in that. And that's why uh, this initiative with Jamaica and the Secretary General uh, is all about convening uh, the decision-making bodies from uh, G7 to G20, from uh, from the World Bank to the IMF, to be part of understanding exactly how we can best make sure that we all get through this and to the other side as quickly as possible.
0: What's in there that's just not true. China, the source of the virus, the source of virus information, they're booming again. They don't have 9% unemployment like we do. They're going full tilt. And they did something interesting. When the virus hit them in Wuhan, they banned flights from Wuhan to other Chinese cities like Beijing and Shanghai. They quarantined Wuhan as regards to the rest of China. But they never stopped flights from Wuhan to the rest of the world, including to Canada. And neither did Trudeau. Trudeau waited months after Trump restricted China flights, before Trudeau did the same. And Trudeau never actually closed the flights from China. We tracked them every day during the pandemic. Same thing with Roxham Road. As Key and Bexty found out, they're operating as normal there. Anyone can walk right over uh, even if they have a virus, especially if they have the virus. But the bigger point is one Trudeau glossed over. He talks about totally eradicating a virus. That just doesn't happen. It won't happen. It, it can't happen. Flu viruses always come and go. There are always places where they are infectious. If your plan is to wait until the entire world is at zero flu viruses, instead of living normally, protecting the vulnerable, but letting the rest of us live our lives, if your mindset is a forever lockdown, well, that's nuts. But I guess it also suits the crisis opportunism of Trudeau, doesn't it? There's a deep state when it comes to the military-industrial complex, isn't there? The generals, the defense contractors. And we saw in the case of Trump, there's the FBI and the CIA in the deep state too. But there's also a deep state when it comes to the public health officials. They love this pandemic. They're having the time of their lives. Bill Gates is positively giddy about his plans to jab everyone in the world, every one of us. Here's Anthony Fauci on how he wants masks to continue, how he wants the restrictions in life to continue, even if there is an alleged vaccine. He loves
2: this. But once, it's, once the process is complete, does that mean they can take off their masks, they don't have to social distance, they can just go about their lives as before? He,
1: You know, I would recommend that that's not the case. I would recommend you have an added uh, area of protection. Obviously, with a 90 plus percent effective vaccine, you could feel much more confident. But I would recommend to people to not abandon all public health measures just because you've been vaccinated. Because even though for the general population, it might be 90 to 95 percent effective,
0: you don't necessarily know for you how effective it is. What's this Agenda 2030 business that Trudeau mentioned, or what's this Great Reset business? Did you ever hear about it on the campaign trail, either in this last Canadian lecture and the one before it? I don't think you did. Partly and unfortunately, because Stephen Harper himself signed on to it in 2015. Take a look at this: um, September 2015, last months of the Harper campaign. Um, let me read this: In September 2015, Canada and all other 192 United Nations member states adopted the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development at the UN General Assembly. This initiative is a global call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that all people enjoy peace and prosperity by 2030. A lot of code words there, but my point is Harper signed on to this. Climate action, responsible consumption and production. What does that mean? It means globalism. It means socialism. It means open borders. It means replacing local sovereignty with supranational organizations, it means more of the UN and less of Canada. It's exactly what the World Economic Forum talks about too. You heard Trudeau use that word reset. That's their phrase, the Great Reset. Use the crisis to level down the capitalist democracies. Remember I showed you that creepy World Economic Forum video the other week? That's part of the Great Reset. Look at this headline. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. No privacy, you own nothing. Come on, guys, get to loving it. Um, Look, this is the the sort of thing that used to be spoken about only by conspiracy theorists. One world governments, the UN, not local parliaments, making decisions, open borders migration, global reset, no privacy, you'll own nothing. Um, I sort of like the 30-second version that I found on Twitter. It really sums it up well. Here, take a look at it one more time.
1: Building back better means getting support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the SDGs. Canada is here to listen and to help. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts, to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change.
0: I think that's what Justin Trudeau is really about. Disappointingly, it's what Harper was about too, at least enough to sign on to it uh, back in 2015. I have no reason to think that the new conservative leader, Erin O'Toole, is against it either. I think this is the ruling class versus the people, just like always, just like this whole pandemic is, don't you? Stay with us for more. Justin Trudeau has cracked down on independent journalists like no other prime minister in recent memory. In fact, not since the War Measures Act and Trudeau's appointed censors in the media has there been a government so hostile to contrary points of view. We learned that firsthand at last year's Media Freedom Conference in the United Kingdom. I attended, along with Sheila Gunn-Reed and her friend Andrew Lawton from True North, and Sheila and Andrew were actually blocked from a press conference at the Media Freedom Conference by Christia Freeland, the co-chair of the conference. Here, take a quick look at that.
1: Okay, so, um, love male, um, uh, global, um CTV, Al Jazeera,
2: CCC, and the National Company, and the What about the rest?
3: Uh, the rest of us. Yeah. No, I no. think we all no. go. That's no. Nonsense. no, no, no. Go. Yeah, that is nonsense. We all go. That's, take side. us to the room
1: no. and we can oh, see yeah. if we can go. we're not going, Brittany. We're just not. We're all going. We we this, all go. all this is a media is freedom the, conference. Yeah, this is ridiculous. We do yeah, we're no. not going then. No.
0: Well, thankfully and perhaps miraculously, the other journalists there were so stunned by this censorship at a media freedom conference that they actually refused to go in without Sheila and Andrew. A rare moment of solidarity, perhaps because the journalists there were not from the Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal Mean Girls Media Party. Well, it's been a year, actually more, and there is a sequel to that Media Freedom Conference. Instead of being held in London, England, Canada is co-sponsoring it with the African country of Botswana. Now, I'm not making fun of Botswana. I happen to know that it is one of the most successful countries in Africa in terms of the rule of law and uh, the Western values like freedom of speech. So although they're perhaps not up to our Western levels, they are probably the best of the bunch. The question is, is Christia Freeland up to Botswanan standards of freedom? Well, this year the conference is not being held in person because of the coronavirus, so instead journalists around the world are participating via Zoom. Our own Sheila Gunn-Reed is... But now we go to our friend, Andrew Lawton, who attended with Sheila and I last time in London, England. And he joins us now via Skype. Andrew, great to see you again. How's the conference so far? You're not in sunny Botswana. You're in your own home. But is it worth attending so far?
2: Yeah, last year it was in London, England. This year I'm celebrating it in London, Ontario. So not quite the same backdrop for the conference. But but nonetheless, it's amazing how in the last year and and four months or so, so little has changed. I I think the big takeaway that I experienced, I know from talking to you and Sheila, you had the same experience last year, was that it really seemed to be about window dressing, not about an actual tangible effect on free speech. And and so far, that's the exact experience. I, I mean, just take a look at the very first session this morning. Now, this was going to be, and I still think is the most important session Of the conference. It was where the representatives of the various countries were getting together to talk about what they see as the key issues for media freedom and how they're going to address them moving forward. And it was closed to the media. Hmm. The very first session of the Media Freedom Conference, in which politicians talk about what they're going to do for media freedom. And I still don't know what happened behind those doors, with the exception of a press release from the foreign ministry from uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne's office. So a lot of the same problems that we had last year, which was uh, you know Western governments like Canada and the UK wanting to focus only on the issues taking place in the third world and not their own br- violations of press freedom on home soil.
0: Yeah, and I'm so glad you're there because you have been personally banned by Justin Trudeau from attending the federal leaders debate. You were in court alongside our own David Menzies' and Kian Bextie, all three of you were banned from the federal leaders debate. So yeah, I'm sure Botswana has things to work on. And I, I'm not trying to pick on them. I actually, from what I understand from both reading and also people who know Africa, Botswana is one of the better places if you believe in freedom. I'm not picking on them. Canada is the one that's falling down, that's sagging. Let me ask you this. Um, One of the things I found odd about last year's Media Freedom Conference that I attended with you in London, England, was that they had lots of little secret back doors for censors. Like I accidentally bumped into the foreign minister of Pakistan, who is one of the most censorious bullies around, and he bullies Twitter to censor people in the West, and he cracks down on dissidents in Pakistan itself. I literally bumped into him by accident. Let me just show people... I try to tear a strip off, and this is me from last year. Take a look. I see there are not. There is one. Yes. Very quick one. Thanks. Actually, I'm not going to be directed by you. I'm going to ask a question to the Pakistani gentleman. No,
2: you're not. Yes, I am. I'm, because I'm it's a gonna... media
0: freedom conference, and you're not going to shut down questions about a censor. You censored me, sir.
1: Right.
0: I have a Very Twitter quick. account in Canada, and because I wrote something that traduced some Pakistani blasphemy law, You complained to Twitter, which took down my tweet in Canada. So can you explain why your Islamic supremacy in Pakistan is silencing my personal and journalistic freedom in Canada? And I know it happens in the United States, too. And frankly, you sure should be embarrassed to invite a censor like this. But back to the thug. Who the hell are you to censor me in Canada? Answer now I'm I do not like I know you don't because you, don't like, I don't, I don't, like you don't like free now, speech. You don't like free speech Okay would you like to ask free I just I just respond to you sir. First of all, okay. you want your sentiments to be respected. Just look at the tone <laughs> and the talent you've adopted. Is that the correct way? You have a right to ask questions. Well then why did you censor me? Did I censor you? You shut down my Twitter tweet. I did not. Don't lie. How am I, how how I responsible for that? Because the government of I Pakistan did. did the government of I Pakistan. Respectful to you no, you were not. You censored I, me. I did not to you. Don't lie. All right. Why would I lie? Because that's what you do. I'm
1: sorry. I'm
0: sorry. I'm sorry. Shame have, on you and shame on you. you. Have,
1: you
0: have shame on you standards. and shame on you, you for inviting me. Shame on you. You, for on you. you, forget you censorious you. thug. You censorious thug. All right, Andrew, I just wanted to show you that because I had fun mouthing off to them. Reliving
2: the glory That's days.
0: right. You know what? If I was a Pakistani <laughs> citizen, that would have been the last you ever seen of me. I guess it's hard to detect if there's interlopers like that, because literally the Pakistani foreign minister was on no official program. It wasn't on the door. I went into a room just to sit down by myself. And it was like a secret session. I guess there's no way to find out about those secret sessions if you can only see what they show you on Zoom, right? You can't actually go around the corridors and accidentally discover a secret sensor.
2: Well, that's I think the most important point of this. And, and virtual conferences really have the one thing to them that you uh, don't really get the news value out of, which is the official program. Whenever I've been at an actual event or summit, the real stories are the people you talk to, the things you overhear, the things you see or as we've learned firsthand from last year, the process of of being excluded from certain things. But You know, when I got my note from the foreign uh, office last week that I had been accredited, you know, it really isn't that big a deal when all the accreditation is, is here's a link to log on from your computer, knowing how the government has treated us in independent journalists in general in the last year. And and that's, I, I think, the big problem here is that Justin Trudeau spoke This morning, and he talked about his government's unrelenting commitment to free speech, and he talked about how uh, his government's always going to stand up for it. No one's there to ask him about the fact that the government is fighting you and uh, I in court ongoing uh, against our press freedom. No one's there to talk to ask about the investigation into your book. On the election, the lebronos no one's there to ask about uh, the time that I was literally detained at roadside by police while trying to cover a Justin Trudeau campaign event because they wouldn't let me on the media bus, even though I was prepared to pay whatever mainstream media reporters went. And, and again, I, I, I want to stress these are, are not on moral equivalence to people who are risking their lives in some parts of the world. And I'm not saying it is, but I am saying that it's very convenient when the Canadian government is trying to get you to look at all of these things overseas without really any introspection as to its own lack of commitment to press freedom.
0: Yeah, it's pretty gross that uh, Trudeau tells a crowd in Botswana how much of a hero he is for free speech while he still has you and me in court. They're still trying to kick us out of next uh, election debate. They're still fighting our judicial Mm -hmm. review of that. And of course, they uh, had police... Escort Kean out of Rideau College. I forgot about the police pulling you over when you were trying to cover the liberal campaign last time. Uh, it's embarrassing to me that so many Canadian journalists allow Trudeau to get away with it. Let me ask you more, one more technical question. One mm-hmm. of the things I found most surprising about last year's Media Freedom Conference was that it was largely outsourced to a media oligarch named Pierre Omidyar, uh, who is sort of the Rupert Murdoch of the left. He loves his media, He has a very strong point of view. And I say, the more the merrier, like let's have a dozen big media titans, the more choice for readers. But it was so weird that a government to government conference had delegated, had contracted out the list of speakers, the themes to a private player um, who I find that very odd. Is there that same sort of oligarchy? Like, do they have any special favored journalists or favored companies here? Have you detected the Omidyar Group or, or his uh, advocacy organization Luminate? Any of that?
2: No, nothing like that. And, and in fact, from a branding perspective, it, it just seems like Canada, Canada, Canada. And there's a part of me that wonders, and I, and I want to make clear that this is a, a speculation in some way on my part, if Canada was really the only one that wanted this, because last July it was this bilateral event pushed by the Canadian and UK governments. This year, the UK government is involved in a peripheral sense, but is not co hosting or co sponsoring. The Canadian government brought the Botswanan government on as co host. But the MC of the event was Francois Philippe Champagne. There was big Canada logos. The platform it's on is the Canadian government's platform. The branding on the video stream is Canada. So in a lot of ways, it it seems like Canada is the one pushing this. And and I'm going to certainly try to figure out what it is that Canada is really getting out of this. But but I almost think this might be, again, one of these Justin Trudeau pet projects now to try to get some cred on the international uh, playing field.
0: Yeah, it's so weird. I mean... Um, how about save that money and actually give us free speech at home instead of, you know, having a foreign, uh, you know, Potemkin village about just how free our media is here? I can only imagine the millions they spent. Um, uh, I, I wonder if there's any themes emerging there. What I, what, one of the things that I found most disappointing last year is that they hated fake news. And I was thinking... One man's fake news is the other man's scoop or revelation. And the whole point of a diversity of voices is that the reader gets to decide. That's what a campaign is. Both politicians are calling each other liars and fakers, and at the end of the day, it's very democratic because the voter gets to choose. I see it the same way with newspapers. You've got the National Post, you've got the Globe and Mail, you've got the Sun, and the viewer gets to decide who's got it right, or maybe a mix of all. So this focus on fake news seemed to me to have nothing to do with freedom in the press. In fact, sort of the opposite, because if you accept the concept of fake news, it implies that you have to do something about Mm -hmm. it. So I think jamming fake news into a media freedom conference is actually uh, a bit of a Trojan horse. Are they still obsessed with that this year, Andrew?
2: Yeah. And in fact, the uh, one event that I peeled away from to come and do this was one of the panels Uh, which was looking at the very question of disinformation. And I I will say the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression had, I I thought, a very good position on this. And what she had said, Irene Kahn is her name, is that governments should not be uh, essentially outsourcing or privatizing these disinformation roles to tech companies, which is something that we see happening in canada potentially on hate speech where the federal government wants to put regulations in effect that will basically force social media companies to take down so-called hate speech and and that actually uh, really clouds your ability as an individual tech platform user to speak freely because now the government is uh, deputizing facebook or, or twitter or google and then i actually thought her position on this was a, a very sound one And conversely, there was a Facebook human rights director, which is in and of itself a a bit of an odd position, a Facebook human rights director on the panel that said, no, 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 tech companies are entirely able to, to deal with this. But then actually later on in the same panel had kind of changed her mind and said that, you know, governments need to adopt universal international standards on this and adopt this international framework. On, on regulation. So th- there is th- really this concern that I think all roads are leading down to governments having to become the arbiters of what can be posted online and what can't be.
0: Yeah. You know, the idea of governments hosting a media freedom conference, because who do journalists have to be free from? The threat of censorship. I mean, I, I take it that these days, some of the threat is from social media companies. But Generally, in terms of criminal prosecutions, in terms of being banned like you and I have been, the threat is from governments. Having governments, especially Trudeau, sponsor, convene, organize, and mm-hmm. screen a media co- freedom conference is like inviting your local butcher to run a vegetarian conference. <laughs> it's just, you; it does not work.
2: Well, uh, and let me say to that point, Ezra, that, uh, you know, the Canada-UK... Uh, Committee gave an award to the Association of of Belarus Journalists, or the Belarus Association of Journalists, rather, the uh, UK Canada Media Freedom Award. And when the the gentleman accepting on behalf of the organization spoke, he had, you know, some horrific things that uh, Belarusian journalists have had to deal with trying to report on what's happening in their country. And one of the key takeaways was uh, saying that one of the tools that censoring governments use to uh, deny press freedom is revocation of accreditation, of, of denying one's, one's recognition or identity as a journalist. And, and again, people in Belarus, again, have to deal with different stakes than we do in Canada. I get that. But that particular tactic is exactly what's being used by Justin Trudeau's government. And it was therefore fascinating when Francois-Philippe Champagne afterwards says it's shocking to hear of such things happening and and why these Belarusian journalists need to be recognized or rewarded for their bravery. I agree that they do, but I wouldn't be so shocked when that's a tactic that your own government is employing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Any uh, foreign minister who for years carries over a million dollars in personal mortgages from the government of China's Bank of China is not someone I would look to for advice on freedom. I'm referring, of course, to Francois-Philippe Champagne, Ken's foreign minister. Well, listen, Andrew, it's great to catch up with you. I know Sheila's at the conference digitally as well, so we'll let you get back to it. Great to see you again. Um, I thought they would ban you and Sheila, but like you say, it's just a Zoom link. It's not like they're giving you inside access like we had last time. Well, we'll keep fighting for freedom. I know you will too. We're actually still in court together fighting against the debate commission's ban, so... This is a battle that we are still fighting, and I know you are too. Congratulations. And thank you, Andrew. Great to see you again. Likewise. All right, there you have it, Andrew Lawton, one of our favorite guys. He's with TNC.news, that's True North. He's also a member of the Independent Press Gallery, just like we are here over at The Rebel. Stay with us, Moorhead. Hello, welcome back. Instead of reading your letters, I want to show you a very exciting video, a new contributor to Rebel News, Kimberly Klesick, the Republican hero who ran for Congress in Baltimore. Now, she didn't win, but she started a whole national conversation about how black Americans didn't have to vote Democrat because Democrats have done nothing for their communities in decades. She did an amazing job, and now, well, she's agreed to do videos for Rebel News. So let me say goodbye to you now but let me leave you with Kimberly Clasics first video for Rebel News. All right everybody good night but take a look at this.
3: So Saturday started out very peacefully in Washington D.C. I should know I was there but unfortunately two unwanted groups showed up and that would be BLM and Antifa. And then of course all hell broke loose but we'll talk about that. Hi, I'm Kim Klasek for Rebel News in Baltimore, Maryland. Saturday was great. I started out at 10 a.m. at the Million Maga March with a bunch of Trump supporters from all over the country. People came from California, Massachusetts, just to show their support for President Trump. President Trump even drove through with his motorcade. He probably didn't want to because let's face it, that was probably a security nightmare for Secret Service, but he did it anyways. And then, at 2 p.m., after I left, of course, Antifa and BLM showed up to rain on everyone's parade. Now, we can all agree on this one thing because it's a fact. This only happens in Democrat-controlled cities. Because these outside instigators, these domestic terrorists, understand that they can only get away with this in Democrat-controlled cities. Now, I was surprised to see President Barack Obama in a 60-minute interview actually admit that all of this started before President Trump took office. It started when he was the president.
1: I don't see him as the cause for our divisions and the problems with our government. I think he's an accelerant, but they preceded him and sadly uh, are gonna likely outlast him.
3: Now, people say, well, how can you blame President Barack Obama but you don't really hold President Trump accountable? Because again, it started under his reign he allowed to get out of control. And the local Democrat leaders would have listened to President Barack Obama had he said, you know what guys, you gotta put your foot down. But he didn't do that. He didn't condemn the violence. Why? Because in his mind, it's all in the name of racism. Yes, racism. That's what we hear all the time in America. Now, racism does exist, but not to the extent in which Democrats want you to believe. But now there are innocent families and people being caught in the middle of extremist groups basically fighting each other over what? I still don't know. There's never a list of demands. No one ever talks about what it is they need or what. They just wanna cause chaos. So, after all the bads that we saw in Washington, DC, as we saw all the videos come out on Saturday night on Twitter, only 21 arrests were made, 21. We saw way more than 21 people engage in violence. But again, this is what happens in Democrat-controlled cities. For Rebel News, I'm Kim Klesing.